Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. As part of today's show on nonverbal communication, Greg has agreed to participate in the introduction without using language. Isn't that right, Greg? It's right. Okay, what are you trying to say to me now? Sounds like, okay, you're miming flying a kite, opening an umbrella, walking your dog. Sounds like kite umbrella dog? No? Sounds like mime? Yes, sounds like mime. Wow, that was tricky. All right, next word? Ice cream cone? Mick Jagger? No? Lick? Yes, that's it. Mime lick? Mime lick. I'm sorry, I'm not getting it. Okay, uh, you're turning blue. Is blue the next word? No? All right, sounds like paddle. Sounds like canoe? Yes? Mime lick canoe? That means nothing to me. Okay, bulging eyes, pointing at throat. Stuck? Yes? Sounds like throat... Something about a mime-lit canoe that's stuck in a boat. Well, don't just give up. I was so close to getting it. Today we'll talk about a novel in which children are born with no language, about the art of mime, and about the real-life creation of language where none existed. Who else would do a radio show about not speaking? And now... See, she's not going to say my name today. That was sort of part of the whole thing. All right. So, yeah, this is all occasioned by a, a book that I read. I read it in book form. I, I apparently I, I missed the first wave of it. It's called The Silent History. So I got a reader's copy. It was like a, a few months ago uh, that, that I got the reader's copy. And, and the premise of the book is that, that a cohort within sort of a modern generation of children, um, a, a subset of those children, are born with no capacity for language acquisition, um, none whatsoever. They they can't uh, read, they can't write, they can't speak, they don't hear language, they don't just they don't communicate with us, um, and and then what spills out from there is you know a little bit of a kind of a dystopian semi futuristic uh, fiction and also some social satire and a whole bunch of other things as well. And what I what I knew just from reading the cover was that uh, a lot of attention had been focused on the fact that the book had initially been absorbed by people as an app. It was something that you sort of looked at on your phone and you got installments and you could move around and it was keyed to place and all kinds of things. I didn't do that anyway. I just I read the book, but I was fascinated by the premise of this book. What if you had no capacity for language acquisition. You couldn't learn sign language, for example. You couldn't do anything like that. Um, you know, how, how different would your human outcomes be? So uh, joining us now is one of the authors of the book. Eli Horowitz is the co-author of several books, and most recently, as I said, The Silent History with Matthew Derby and Kevin Moffat. Uh, previously, he was managing editor and publisher of McSweeney's for eight years. So uh, Eli and I could very, have, uh, very easily have a conversation about this, uh, but um, it would be some, a lot of it would be speculative. Well, it turns out, thanks to the miracle of producer Betsy Kaplan, that there's somebody not even wasn't even located terribly far away from where I'm sitting right now. There's somebody who's really been thinking a lot about this very question. What kind of human outcomes are there when language acquisition hasn't happened? Uh, Marie Capola is an assistant professor of psychology and linguistics at the University of Connecticut, where she directs the Language Creation Lab and is the founder and executive director of Manos Unidas. We'll tell you a little bit more about that as we go along. So um, Eli Horowitz, First of all, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having me. And uh, I, I've tried to lay out the, the premise of this. We're going to be talking much more about this notion of no language than we are about a, a book that started out as, uh, out as an app. But did I do okay with the premise, premise of the book, uh, of this cohort with no language acquisition? Yeah, you did great. I was I was worried I was going to have to do it myself, but you did a great job. And then following them as they sort of form a community of their own. And so examining what happens in a community without language when they're not just outsiders. Right. So they, they have their own community and they have their own way of communicating that's not a sign language, right? Can you detail that? Can you give us a little bit more sense of what that means? Sure. I mean, something we tried to really unravel and explore throughout the book was how is communication different from language. We often hear them kind of as one is the same because we, you know, our minds are so dominated by language. But there's all sorts of ways we communicate by gestures, by facial expressions um, that don't really fit language in any kind of linguistic sense. I mean, surely Marie can talk better about this than I can. But um, language is a pretty specific thing. It's hard to say exactly the boundaries of it, but it, it does mean something pretty specific and pretty specifically human. Uh, whereas communication is much wider ranging and maybe less cleanly understood. Um, well, you know, one of the differences between the conversation you and I are having and the conversation that uh, Marie and I are having is I can see uh, her head nodding, her hand going. <laughs> There's all kinds of right. nonverbal things going on right now. So, Marie Coppola, and as we go along, we are going to flesh out quite a bit what your research is, what your experiences are, um, in both personal and professional, with this whole subject. But, but what about that? Is there communication without language? I absolutely agree with Eli, and I, this is one of the distinctions that I stress when I teach about this to my students. Language is a very highly structured system that has the benefit of allowing communication, but communication can and does pretty much constantly happen, even when we're not using a spoken language or a signed language um, and uh, I, I only just learned about your book, but I'm very, very interested to see how you flesh out those ideas, Eli. And one of the things, you know, that we were realizing throughout the process was we all do this much more than we're aware of. We, language is so much of a constant presence and a constant voice for us that we don't appreciate how much we're getting and on, on what a subtle level we're interpreting each other. You know, a, just the way an eyebrow is twisted, like the way that skepticism is different than skeptical amusement on the face. And we instantly understand it, but we couldn't describe it. And don't we don't even understand that it's something that we do understand. We, Marie, one constantly encounters various percentages for uh, of how much of communication is nonverbal anyway. And it, you can see 55%, you can see 93%, you can see 112%. depends which study you read, right? <laughs> uh, I, I, nobody really knows that, do they? No, I think that's too difficult to quantify given the, the huge range of environments and social settings in which we do communicate. Um, I, it's um, it's definitely plays a large part in face-to-face communication. Um, that's not the particular focus of my research, but I think we all know that. We, we sense when people are their emotional state. We, we understand things other than what they're saying with their mouth. Um, it's... It is pervasive, and we don't we don't fully have conscious access to it. Well, let's blow Eli Horowitz's mind a little bit and talk about what the focus of your research is, because this is pretty interesting. I mean, to to whatever extent it's possible to find a group of people who are pretty close to the the, the predicament, uh, if that's the right word, that uh, that his characters have, you, you might have found it. So so tell us about this. Sure. Um, so Eli, please feel free to jump in and correct me, because I as I said, I haven't had a chance to read the book yet, but the way. Um, Colin described it, it 
sounds like you are talking about uh, no capacity for language, but you spoke in um, no capacity for reading and writing, which, of course, are parasitic on spoken language to begin with. Um, but in, it, the, what, re, what we know from decades of research now is that sign languages use the same neural pathways and, and brain areas as spoken languages for, for the, to a large degree. And so um, it, scientifically, it's a little hard to imagine not having any capacity for language at all, and, um, but yet still having some, something about the organism that wants to communicate, right? Somehow a social basis for wanting to exchange information uh, between individuals and, and forming a community. So that's not something I think that you would ever see in real life. But what I have been uh, studying in real life for the last 20 years is a situation in Nicaragua that is, as Colin said, a very close parallel to what you described, except that these are children who still have retained the capacity for language. It's just coming out as a sign language. They're going from using gestures and seeing only seeing gestures as their only kind of communicative input and turning that into a language as they form a community. Because these, these are, for the most part, deaf children, right, who have not been taught a sign language. That's right. They were not taught a sign language, but the sign language emerged out of their interactions with each other at a school for special education in Nicaragua. So, Eli, this is very close in some ways to your silence, at least in the sense that uh, initially no nobody from outside their world can teach them anything, but they can teach one another uh, a system, which they all very quickly learn. Yeah, that was actually a conscious that Nicaraguan sign language scenario was um, was definitely inspiration for a portion of the book. Just the hunger, um, like Marie says, sign language. You know, we very much understand as a kind of language, and so the children in our book don't have that. But what they do share with this Nicaraguan situation is the hunger to connect that can kind of um, transcend institutional barriers. Um, and sort of the, the spontaneity and flexibility, especially of children's minds, to do these things. So that was something we were very excited about. Yeah, the closest um, analog to our situation that we could see was individuals who, almost these children before they were brought to this school, deaf individuals in isolated situations where they don't have other, um, they don't have a community to speak with, other no one else knows sign language. That's the closest that we found to people in this condition. Uh, the other group that Marie can also talk better about, I bet, is um, cases where a child wasn't exposed to language but also has a whole host of other challenges, whether in some abusive situation or raised in the wild by wolves or whatever. You know, there's cases of that throughout history. But in those, it's often very hard to pinpoint what the effect of no language is and how to separate that from all the other difficulties they've got. Well, Marie non-verbally indicated to me that she does want to talk about it, particularly that first I, thing, right? Yeah. I can't tell you how excited I am that we have gotten to the heart of this so quickly. Um, <laughs> Eli, you really have spent quite a great deal of time thinking about this and analyzing it, and um, I, I really can't wait to read your book. Um, but it turns out that the my major focus is not on that new language that's in Nicaragua, but on deaf people exactly as you described, deaf people who live in Nicaragua, but because uh, they live too far away from a deaf community and they don't have a strong enough infrastructure to have special education in most parts of the country, they are exactly living the situation that you just described. They're a single deaf person. Everybody around them speaks Spanish, which they cannot hear. 
and they haven't had the opportunity to interact with other deaf people, whether they sign or don't sign, and they're basically creating their own mini individual sign language. And for the last 20 years, I've been working with four deaf individuals like this and following them over time and, and trying to understand how much language they can come up with, what how those gesture systems that we call home sign systems are similar to or different from established sign languages around the world, as well as how much communication is actually going on within those families. And what's the most striking finding that we've that we've discovered recently is that the family members don't understand them very well, um, which just blows people away. And uh, so, yeah, I'll just stop there. Well, let's don't talk understand them as people or don't understand the signs? They don't understand the content of the gestures. So their communication mm-hmm. is really limited to exactly the kinds of things that, that I think maybe you're focusing on in your book. They're um, other sort of more whole body or emotional type signals like facial expressions or just routines or certain contexts. They really don't uh, even, so the language that the, that the deaf person has invented, the home signer has invented, even that sort of mini language is not understandable to the family members. And they rely on these other cues and contexts to, to communicate whatever they can. And Eli, you know, one of the things that happens in your book that's a little bit different from what Marie's describing right now is that this particular cohort of silence ultimately decides that, that their own company would be vastly preferable uh, for the most part to, to the, the, their parents or other people who simply aren't like them. So it's very much about that experience of other. But I think one of the things that you're both interested in that's very interesting within the context uh, of your novel and I think uh, of great interest to, to Marie is – then what are the human outcomes? I mean, within the fictionalized world of your novel, one of the things that happens is that not only do the silent the silent people, the, the silence, as they're called, do, not only do they decide to live together, in many cases live communal, communally, but they don't really necessarily live any kind of parallel life to what everybody else is leading. I mean, they live sometimes in squalor. They live, you know, they, they don't adopt a lot of mores that go along with, with being part of the, the speaking, hearing, language, using community. Talk about that decision. What was your thinking about that? Well, in the later portions of the book, when those communities start to spring up, we were then exploring it less as a linguistic phenomenon, as a psychological phenomenon, but sort of how groups define themselves, how we understand the other. You know, this, in a way, language became, the language barrier became a useful way to just explore the other, mm-hmm. which is obviously sort of a classic fictional trope is how people react to what they couldn't understand. And this, the silence as a kind of very firm, clean division between the two groups. Um, and, you know, we see all the time in all different levels of society, groups that are ostracized sort of eventually reclaim their own identity and um, take that as a point of pride. And sometimes they're trying to assimilate, but sometimes they want to self-segregate. They want to have pride in, in who they are themselves. You know, we see things in the in the deaf community currently with cochlear implants about whether they are having a disability that should be fixed or their own society that should be preserved. And uh, so we try to imagine that and, and play it out to its logical conclusion. And Marie, that's got to be of some interest to you, that too, that whole question, too. Obviously, you're dealing right now with a lot of people who are in very individual circumstances and, and who probably really do, would vastly prefer 
uh, to be able to join the immediate society of their nuclear family, uh, maybe the larger society of their village. But, you know, when you look at larger populations uh, of people who are, who are non-hearing people, uh, as Eli says, sometimes there are there are some identifications that they make that they would be reluctant to give up. Yes. Well, I mean, for most signing deaf adults, um, the deaf community is the only place where they have the same kind of unfettered um, ability to share their thoughts and feelings with others. Um, they mostly have grown up in families where there's communication has been limited to one degree or another. And um, of course, you would prefer to uh, be in a community where you can be yourself and be understood and understand what others are telling you all the time and not constantly feel excluded and isolated. I just want to go back to the people that you're talking about, the people who are they're rural people in Nicaragua. They haven't had this uh, urban experience of this this learned language that wasn't really created by any outside force or anything like that, but simply people who are who become si- their own version of signing people in these urban Nicaraguan environments. But the people you're looking at, they live in rural environments. Nobody teaches them international sign language. They don't learn this thing. Um, and, and in terms of human outcomes there, you know, I mean, they're but they're also not Peter the Wild. You know, they're not right. they're they're not growing up and they're not being raised by wolves or you know. So how estranged from the value sets around them do they become? That's a really great question, Colin. Um, so it is important, I think, to recognize that there aren't the same kinds of limitations as there are with feral children and cases of abuse. Um, many of them well known, like the case of Jeannie. Uh, in the United States, um, we if we do see differences between how home signers, these deaf individuals who um, are creating their own language, if we see differences in how they uh, understand the world or understand other people, then we can be a little bit more confident that it has to do with this lack of linguistic input and the limitations of their language system. And that's um, actually what a couple of current lines of research in my laboratory are addressing. We're looking at um, how how these deaf people understand quantity, how whether they can learn to count, for example, and also their social cognition. How do they understand other people? They're not socially impaired uh, at an organic level. There's nothing intrinsic to them that is causing them to not be able to understand others socially because they have fairly relatively normal social interactions. They have friends. They interact with their family members. They talk to other people in their in their communities. They Some of them have children. They have jobs. So um, it is very interesting to... We have observed some very interesting limitations in their abilities that do make them a little bit different from people who have a full language. And I could talk more about that at some point. Well, yeah, I think we do want to talk more about that. And we're going to take a break in just a second here. First of all, I mention who we're talking to. You just heard Marie Coppola. She's an assistant professor of psychology and linguistics at the University of Connecticut, where she directs the Language Creation Lab and the founder and, uh, and executive director of Manos Unidas. Uh, Eli Horowitz is the co-author of several books, but most pertinently, The Silent History. So before we go to break, Eli, because I want to talk a lot more about this. I should also say in the final segment we are going to add, uh, because we have to have a conversation with a mime. So Bill Bowers, who's a world-renowned mime and actor who studied with uh, the legendary Marcel Marceau, will join us in the third segment here. But, you know, even thinking about Bill Bowers, Eli, and thinking about what Marie just said and reading your book, to me, I really started thinking about that whole issue of to what degree 
does our psychological constitution, our, our, our set of social reactions, our ability to function in society, how much of it is completely dependent on linguistic input at some point? So that, you know, even if I'm watching Bill Bowers do mime, well, maybe that's not a good example. But let's say I'm watching Slapstick, okay? Let's say I'm watching Peter Sellers or, or Charlie Chaplin or something like that. So there's no words involved there. And, and, and I'm laughing because I'm seeing... If, if I'm laughing, I'm laughing because I'm seeing some kind of physical pain or some kind of you know awkward physical situation that's couched for me in a safer setting so that I understand it's not really a dangerous thing. The person isn't experiencing real pain, so I can now laugh at this. You know, I started to wonder if if I had no language acquisition capacity, how uh, how dependent on that substructure am I for understanding something as completely wordless as slapstick? Which I think is part of the question that you're asking uh, about the people in your book. Certainly. That's right at the core of the book. And obviously, language is ubiquitous in our understanding of those things. The question is, is it necessarily ubiquitous? Or is it more just the chattering voice, the little annoying voiceover we do to kind of create a filter between us and our experience? Uh, You know, Marie was talking about the limitations that may be created by the lack of language. And certainly those exist. But What I also was wondering is, in what ways does the language limit us? Does the language come between us and the more true experience? In which ways um, is language kind of an impoverished way to have certain kinds of experiences or interactions? You know, if someone asks you, how are you feeling? How was your day? I think we all know that pretty good or I'm grouchy. Those are actually pretty weak depictions of our internal states. Um, And those can be conveyed much more clearly through other forms of communication and other forms of expression. And so the extent to which we're dependent on language is not always useful to us. And the, the, the extent to which we're unable to imagine an experience outside it, I think, is a, is a weakness on our parts. And right. so that's, that's what the book was trying to do is imagine another kind of experience. Okay, there's so much about that I just want to explore. We're supposed to go to break. But before we go to break, I just so I don't lose that, Marie. Uh, first of oh, all, you were. I, I'm definitely coming back to that, so you don't have to worry. All right, let's go to it. let's let's go to break there. I've just said there's about eight trains of thought that I have right now, and I think I could hold hold on to about two of them, but uh, that's all right. The guests will figure it all out. We'll take a break and we'll come back. All right, we're back. We're talking about um, people who um, must uh, or, or or can uh, try to communicate without using language. Um, and so Eli Horowitz is with us, the co-author uh, most recently of The Silent History with Matthew Derby and Kevin Moffat. Um, this is a novel. It's a fascinating novel, and it really does sort of work as as kind of a semi-dystopian future fiction and, and some, some satire as well uh, and, uh, and a lot of other things. But it, it is about um, a subset of a generation um, born with, where children are born with no ability to acquire language. Uh, Marie Coppola is assistant professor of psychology and linguistics at the University of Connecticut, where she directs the Language Creation Lab. She's also the founder and executive director of Manos Unidas. So uh, as we were going into the break, Marie, uh, Eli was talking about that whole question of, okay, so we understand understand what an incredible deficit and impairment it would be not to have language. But he had started to wonder also whether there were any kinds of impoverishments or, or deficits created by language, by having language. So you've got two groups of people that you can look at here. One of them would be the group of, uh, of deaf
enough people living in urban situations in Nicaragua where, without any intervention, they invented their own sign language, which I think we all know that if you and I, Eli and Betsy and Kion, were plopped down in urban Nicaragua, we wouldn't be able to do that. It would take us a re- we probably wouldn't be able to invent a full sign language that we could use to communicate. You've also, you're also looking at these people in rural Nicaragua who, who don't have access to other deaf people with whom to build this language and, and, and don't have access to any other kinds of interventions to help them learn language. And one of the things you're saying to us is their families can't understand the self-created idiosyncratic communication styles and structures that they try to develop, which kind of reinforces Eli's point a little bit, right? Well, it does and it doesn't. I mean, they there is some degree of communication there, but it does seem to be limited to these non-linguistic aspects. And, I, and this is a, a line of research that I've just begun with one of my graduate students, Emily Kerrigan. Um, and um, if you decontextualize the gestures, if they're describing events where it it could be anything, right? It could be a man drinking a cup of water or a woman drinking a cup of water, and you have the home signer express that with their gestures, and then you show that to their mothers, their mothers are not um, not very accurate in they're not. T- terrible. They're better than chance at picking the right picture that goes with that sentence. But the very, very striking part is that if you show that same sentence to a signer of American Sign Language who has never seen that home signer before, um, doesn't know anything about Nicaraguan Sign Language or Nicaraguan culture, and more importantly, has not lived with that person for the last 25 or 30 years, they are better able to extract the meaning of those sentences than their own mothers and family members. And that is really, really striking to us. And that, to us, indicates how this has, these home sign systems have gone from being gestures that are really tied to the context in the here and now and to certain routines is really becoming transformed into a linguistic system that has um, systematic relational properties where the gestures relate to each other in predictable ways that those family members, they haven't learned the grammar of that home sign system. Of course, you know, one of the uh, we can fall. I mean, I'm sure you don't, but we in conversation can fall into the trap, uh, Eli, of thinking. I mean, you gave a great example of it. You ask somebody, how are they doing or how was their day? And 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 you say you can say I'm fine. It was fine or whatever. And that could mean all kinds of different things. Right. Including it was terrible or I don't feel like talking about it mm-hmm. or I actually did have a good day or I mean, we don't always use language to convey an exact set of meanings. We use language in lots of very slippery and complicated ways. Language is is eminently messy. Yeah, definitely. And we are not fully aware of it. We we think, you know, we can pick it up in sort of in politics or in advertising, things where we're conscious that someone is trying to sell it to ourselves or sell things to us. But what we're less conscious of is how we're selling things to ourselves all the time. You know, just walking to the studio today, just the my constant narration of every person I see in the street and trying to find the thing and am I late? Da, 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 da. It's it's tiring. <laughs> it's tiring and it's not necessarily accurate. Um, so, you know, I think it's true for some of these experiments that Marie is talking about. I mean, that was a fascinating experiment. But still, it's about conveying facts, conveying information. And I think it's definite that language is, is probably the best tool for that. But when it's these other things that you're talking about, conveying emotional states, I mean, I bet these mothers love their children. Who You know, how do they communicate that love? Is that 
communicated through words or gestures, or is it communicated through other other forms of communication? Uh, there's a lot of forms of experience that we have trouble being conscious of. We have trouble pinning down. We have trouble testing precisely because they're non-linguistic kinds of experience. You want to react to that? Yeah, I I totally agree with you, Eli. And I, um, I as you said that, I was reminded of um, the situation of my own father. So both <laughs> I don't come to this by accident. Both of my parents are deaf and use American Sign Language, and it was one of my first languages along with English. And um, my grandmother, uh, who was so my father is like 95 percent of deaf people in the United States. He was born into a family where everybody was hearing except for him. And um, he was born at a time where the recommendations to parents were do not learn sign language because then you're child will never learn to speak and it won't um, it won't be good for for your child. Um, well, I mean, we could have a whole other show about all of that, mm-hmm. all of those issues. But the the bottom line here is that she really communicated with him through food. She was she her parents had immigrated from Italy. She was a wonderful cook. She had a restaurant in upstate New York, and she really communicated with him through food. And um, the rest of his family sort of picked other ways to interact with him and communicate with him and communicate their affection and love for him. One relative would always take him to the movies. Um, another relative, you know, would, would do other things with him. But, um, yeah, if you only see it, the fact that we all have language and these other ways to do <laughs> to express emotions and and those kinds of things, that's really great. But when you only have that. That is very, very limiting for us as humans, and that's um, uh, it, it limits the kinds of things that can go on in your own mind as an individual, and it limits your ability to form really close relationships with other people. I don't want to say that they that the uh, deaf people, either in my family or in my research, don't have any. The, they they are not able to optimally express their affection and love for each other because they only have those nonverbal, non-linguistic channels to rely on. Um, the deaf, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I'm just just wondering if the deaf people in your study have had interactions with each other. They have occasionally met each other, but they haven't had extended interactions with each other. But to more more um, to your question. There is one uh, deaf person I have worked with who actually does live in Managua, where there is a vibrant deaf community. And in fact, I met him at the deaf community there in the deaf club. And he understood that they were like him, that they talked with their hands. And he he understood that they could all understand each other and he could understand a little bit. And I thought after that first meeting, I would never be able to continue studying his home sign system because, of course, he would go learn this new language. Like, mm. how amazing that he could now be part of this community. He has not become part of that community. That happened 18 years ago, and he he is happy with what he has. I mean, he knows where they are. He could go there anytime, but he has chosen not to, which is very different from the experiences of deaf people in the United States. Once they find the deaf community after they've been isolated linguistically for a long time by, because their families have um, kind of encouraged them uh, to speak and understand English and really haven't embraced sign language as a, as a means of communication, 
Um, that that doesn't happen here. When people get into the deaf community, that they, it's just this huge sigh of relief, and that's that's now their world. But for this guy, um, it wasn't, and it speaks a little bit to cultural differences in these nonverbal behaviors and the use of gesture by hearing people in Nicaragua. They really they go to town. I mean, they you just see these gesture conversations happening all over the place all the time. They're much have a much richer um, repertoire of gestures that they use, and they're able, much better able to communicate with a deaf person who doesn't uh, share a language with them than, than anybody in the United States is. It's been very, very remarkable to us as researchers. That really is fascinating. You know, I want to just shift gears a tiny, tiny bit, although not much. Uh, Eli Horowitz, I'm, this is one of the few shows you're going to do in which uh, the interviewer is not constantly dwelling on the evolution of this novel uh, through an app. But there is one little part of this that that I do find interesting, and, and that is whether or not the book itself and the notion of the silence in this generation or this portion of a generation that that can't acquire uh, or use a language arose or or may have arisen from any kind of anxiety about the transformation that we're all engaging in digitally right now. And, you know, I just spent four days teaching a writing workshop down in New Haven. I'm in Hartford most of the time. And one of the differences between Hartford and New Haven is the streets are just much more full in New Haven of people in their late teens and early 20s who are using their phones all the time. And and I just realized I had to develop a slightly different physical reaction system and social reaction system because a lot of people just are just are walking towards you about to smash into you, you know, and they just don't know it. And I'm not used to that. And, and you know, I mean, there, you know, McLuhan talks about how, you know, we were going to use technology to extend our dendrites out into the universe. And we did that. But I'm also I'm keenly aware that this is it's just not a complete boon. Right. There are ways in which we are cut off uh, from from old styles of communication simply because we're hyper reliant on new devices. Yeah, I think that's true. And not even not even anything very specific about cell phones or ebooks or anything like that. But just we are becoming there's just maybe more and more chatter. Uh, and there's more and more chatter that we mistake for experience or that becomes a replacement for experience or how the experience gets mediated, uh, whether that's in our uh, consumption of media or our communication with each other. You know, and I'm fully a part of this as much as anyone. Um, and I think in some ways it's also just a skepticism about writing. You know, we are we were three writers who wrote this book about how language can hold us back and something to be in some level suspicious of. Um you know, the more that we do these things, you also can see how it's kind of a, a pretty thin layer of experience, the way we express ourselves. Uh, so, yeah, so it's tied up with all those things. And, you know, we kind of only discovered the book throughout the writing of the book. It wasn't a, a screed or a, it didn't have a thesis statement to start with. All right. So we're going to take a quick break here. Uh, we're going to add to this conversation uh, in, I think, some interesting ways, too, that, that really do uh, correspond very neatly uh, to Marie's work and to Eli's book. Uh, Bill Bowers will join us, a world-renowned renowned mime, right after this. Communication is a strong foundation to society. 
Just say it. Just say what you're doing. Come on, just go ahead and tell us. Just say what it is. What? Again? Dang, this is the fifth time I've been kicked out of a mime show. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Brittany Hill and Katie Pikus. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin and sort of appeared in the intro. The part of Bill Curry was played by Teller. For show pages, articles, and video to the Faith Middleton Show staff's new project, Schmoozeless Food, visit our website, WNPR.org. And now, back to Colin. All right. We've been having, to my way of thinking anyway, a fascinating conversation uh, about this whole notion of, uh, of communication without language, and particularly by communication by and for people who have not acquired language one way or another. Eli Horowitz is the uh, co-author with Matthew Derby and Kevin Moffat of The Silent History. This is a novel uh, about uh, a group of people, uh, um, part of a generation of children born without language acquisition, uh, cannot speak, cannot understand language, uh, cannot read, cannot write. Uh, Marie Coppola is an assistant professor of psychology and linguistics at the University of Connecticut, where she studies a similar phenomenon in in many ways. Uh, Groups uh, of people... uh, primarily in Nicaragua, who, um, ha- who are deaf but have not been taught uh, by intervention sign language and either develop their own home signing systems or learn this uh, separate urban language that, which has been evolved by the deaf people in urban settings uh, all by themselves. So uh, we're going to add to this conversation uh, somebody who, who uh, volitionally and electively uh, chooses to communicate without words. That's Bill Bowers. He's a world-renowned mime and actor, studied under Mar- Marcel Marceau. He's performed at the Kennedy Center, the White House, and on Broadway in The Lion King, The Scarlet Pimpernel. Welcome to this conversation, Bill Bowers. Thank you very much. And I have to tell you, this is not my first radio interview as a mime. <laughs> well, you're not the first mime we've had on our radio show either. So, ah, I mean, well, there you go. we really are that perversely inclined that we would <laughs> uh, we would have talked on more than one occasion to, to more than one mime. But, you know, listening to this conversation, you know, one of the things that I was going to ask you um, is when part part obviously mime is kind of like haiku right you're imposing on yourself uh, a set of restrictions you're you're yep. you, so so that's that's a choice and i'm wondering also when people watch mime when they're sitting in the yep. audience watching you do you sense in them any kind of anxiety like what if i can't understand it what if i don't get it is that part of the tension that creates the excitement of the performance absolutely i um feel that's always part of my job as a performer that works without language for the most part, is to address and deal with the resistance in the room. And I usually, you know, choose pieces that kind of ease an audience into how how they have to uh, participate in making the performance happen, because it really is a contract between me as a performer and the audience that they're going to participate in an imaginary world. So, um, yeah, there's always resistance. Um, and I think some of it is that they're not going to understand it. Some of it is the connotation of mime, particularly in this country, is is such a negative kind of, you know, uh, butt of a joke kind of thing that people think, well, it doesn't have meaning or it's going to be weird or it's going to be, they're going to, you know, hit me with an imaginary rope or something, you know. So there's there certainly are, are guards up by um, an audience. You know, um, as we were during the break, Marie was saying, you know, she was talking about what the limitations would be for you. Like she was saying he probably can't communicate what happened yesterday uh, or um, in, I don't know. What were some of the other ones that you were saying, Marie? Um, what will happen tomorrow or what someone else thinks or 
all kinds of things that we really seem to need language to do. Would you, do you agree with that? I mean, how many limitations do you feel, or is it just a matter of getting your act together and you, you could say almost anything? Well, um, that's an interesting question. I, I travel a lot in Europe and other countries, and when, of course, you know, English is just spoken in so many places now, but I have found that I've never had a problem communicating what I need to communicate if I don't have the language to do it. It's, it, really, uh, is, it, it really is my first language, so I'm very comfortable with trying to figure out how to say things non-verbally. And I find that it's just a place that, audi- that not audience, other people can find their way to, to communicate you know, essential things that you need to say to someone right now. Um, so I don't feel like it has many limits. Um, Eli Horowitz, uh, this is, uh, you seem to have thought about everything uh, in terms of thinking about this imagined uh, group of people who, who can't talk and can't understand language. I, I would assume mimes were in there somewhere, but this would be your opportunity either to ask a question or direct a comment uh, to somebody who's actually uh, working as a mime. <laughs> well, I think what's most interesting about Bill and people in his, his position, whether mimes or even to some extent actors and actresses, is yeah. um, having to become conscious of these things that we're doing unconsciously all the time to, to maximize this form of communication. Um, yeah. So I don't know if there's a question in here, but there must be all these moments when you're realizing, if I bend my face like this, if I bend my body like that, it will create this kind of understanding and this kind of emotional state in in the viewer and having to kind of become very precise about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I feel like most of my job as a mime and as an actor is to be an observer and to collect um, sensations and gesture and um, things I view in the world and then find a way to not simplify them, but heighten them in a sense. So it's a, I always, when I work with students, I always talk about mind being a heightened truth. You're trying to be as truthful as you can be in a heightened physical language so that the largest amount of people can hook into you and follow you. You know, uh, Marie, that sort of leads me to the, the, the answer to this question is four hours long, unfortunately. But, you know, he's saying something really interesting, which is, uh, you know, in, and Eli's saying something really interesting, which is as a mime, Bill Bowers, he's thinking about that. He's thinking if I bend my face this way and my body that way in a very precise way, if I heighten it, you know, I can communicate these very precise things. So but there's some kind of gap between that and what one of these home signing deaf people in Nicaragua who have tried to develop their own try to really be Bill Bowers in a certain way. If I bend my face this way, if I move my hands that way, if I do this, my family will understand what I'm thinking. Where's the gulf there between what Bill can do and what's almost impossible to do for the people that you study? That's a great point. Um, And again, this goes back to this distinction between language and communication that we talked about earlier in the show. And um, communication can take many forms, right? It can take the form of mime. It can take the form of uh, your dog observing your behavior um, and and predicting what kinds of things you're going to do. Um, that's obviously communication, but that's not linguistic. And um, what's, what's different about language is that it's uh, a productive system that uses these little chunks of meaning that 
aren't themselves meaningful that we then put together in these very systematic ways. And, and of course, I realize that as I'm saying this, Bill is probably thinking, well, that's exactly what I do too, <laughs> right? Well, and yeah, and right. I wish we had longer to, to really get into this um, because obviously when you study something so closely and that you're talking about these observations, these very, very close nuanced observations that you make that you then bring into focus, right? That That is really incredible. And of, of course, only a very few people are talented with that. Most people can't travel around the world and um, have conversations, successful conversations with just about everybody they meet. I mean, I'm kind of one of those people and you're one of those people, but we come to that through a very um, specialized set of experiences that has kind of led us down that path. Um, yeah. People can get by with gesture without speaking, but in a, usually that requires a pretty interactive, for, the, for a normal person, right? That requires, uh, and I mean typical by normal, um, for the typical person um, who hasn't honed this expertise in some way, that is requires some sort of cooperation and back and forth interaction with somebody who's really willing to enter into that. Uh-huh. And um, well, yeah. you know, that that goes to another point about that willingness to enter into that too. Bill, yeah. you know, in in Eli's book, the people who who can't acquire language, uh, that, that kind of person is called a silent, and it, it's a semi pejorative term, I, I think, for some people. And and in this book, and and you know, sometimes even watching people who communicate only by sign language, uh, I think in some of us there's a little anxiety that wells up just because they're not making any noise, but they're communicating, and I'm not used to that. And and yeah. I, I'm guessing with audiences that one of the things you have to struggle with is people, particularly when you perform in Washington. God help you. People have a problem with silence, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I think it's very. Um, it's a very vulnerable place to ask people to sit in. And um, I've spent a lot of time in my life thinking about this because, um, you know, if you think about places of silence, they're, they're temples and churches and libraries. They're places of contemplation and thought. And so when you ask an audience to really be in that silent space, it's vulnerable. They might actually feel something. And that's the, by and large, the main comment I've gotten anywhere I've performed for my entire career is people will say to me, oh, I had no idea I would be feeling so much on a mime show, or I didn't realize I was going to cry. You know, I think sometimes language and, you know, bells and whistles and sounds that keeps feelings at bay in a way. It's something you can put in front of actually um, emoting. <laughs> Um, yeah, I very much agree yeah, with ahead. that. And I think it is really something – a limited group of people are uh, conscious of their ability to do this. But I actually think we all have a really strong ability to, to interact this way to some extent. I mean you can do it as mm-hmm. simply as just turning the sound off in a movie. You'll yeah. understand 90 percent and then just take a moment to think, why do I know what that person is basically saying? Why do yeah. I know what they're feeling? And yeah. you know, it's not that lang- – that this can do everything the language can. Marie said some very good examples of things the language is uniquely good for, talking about things that aren't there, talking about the past, talking about the future. The question is, uh, do we structure our experience to make that kind of information more important than it really needs to be at the expense of other kinds of experience, other kinds of information? Right. right. I think some of it for me is uh, – is, um, being present with another human being, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that, and within that comes a kind of willingness and a, and maybe a way to hone the ability to communicate without words is to actually be available to each other, um, and that's what I find um, as a teacher. That's what I try to 
encourage students to do is to just take away sound and allow that presence between each other. And that opens, it seems to open up portals in us that we may not ordinarily want to open up. Um, we're going to have to stop there, although we could start, I have to introduce our fourth guest, Umberto Eco, who's now going to explain uh, what language actually is. No, that's actually not happening. We're all done. Um, but although I just would quickly say here, you know, one of the things we didn't have time to get into, there's like 15 things we didn't have time to get into. But, you know, just even building on what Bill just said, I think there's also this strong prejudice and you see it in some of the characters in Eli's novel. And I'm sure Marie encounters it, too, that w- when language isn't being used, that means Something intellectually inferior is happening. Spoken language. Yeah, spoken language means is a sign of intelligence, and lack of spoken language uh, is therefore is implicitly cruder and less intelligent. And I think that extends even to mime. I think there's some people going, well, I mean, if he's not going to talk, he can't possibly tell me anything interesting or important. So, I mean, that's like a whole other area of of prejudice. But if you want to experience some of that or at least uh, see that in an interesting way, do read The Silent History. Even if you missed the app phenomenon, you didn't do it that way, I'm really I have enjoyed the book uh, a lot, and certainly you'll never think about Wallabies quite the same way again. Eli Horowitz, uh, Matthew Derby, and uh, Kevin Moffat wrote that book. Uh, Marie Coppola has been with us from the uh, Manos Unidas and the Language Creation Lab, uh, and, of course, Bill Bowers. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan and Kion Wolf for pulling this show together. I'm Kion Wolf. Ten years ago today, my best friend ran off to become a mime. She kept quiet about it for, I guess, her whole life, and then I never heard from her again.